Welcome back to Sashimi. In this episode, I spoke with Francois Labouri, the president of Cognite America, which offers software design for asset-heavy industries. Francois oversees Cognite's expansion to the US, Canada and Latin America, and that was the focus of our conversation. He shared the experience of bringing the Norway-based Cognite to the US market, discussed the biggest challenges he has faced along the way, and compared corporate cultures in the US and Europe. But first, let me tell you about the sponsor of this season of Sashimi, Seligo. Seligo is the leading enterprise-wide integration platform as a service for mid-market companies. Named the G2 Best Software for 2021, Seligo enables breakaway growth, controlled cost management, and superior customer experiences by ensuring that every process at any level of the organization can be automated in the most optimal way. For more information, visit seligo.com or just click the link in the description. And now, back to my interview with Francois Labouri. Francois, thank you for being on the podcast. Hey, very nice being there, Asno. Yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, Cognite today. But before we start, maybe you say a few words about yourself and how you end up in the company. Sure. So my name is Francois Laborie. I am based in Texas. And just by saying my name, you can guess I'm not from Texas. I'm French originally. I joined Cognite five years ago as we were building the company in Norway. And I'm currently heading, I'm president for Cognite in America, leading the business here. And what's Cognite? Cognite is a software company built for industry. So we're looking at the challenges that industry is having when it comes to handling data and quote-unquote digitalizing, which is mostly a data challenge when you look at the way they operate. And Cognite was built as a SaaS, as a software company to help these very large players. We can talk a little bit more about who they are, but very large established operational players make sense of their data and digitalize, so transform themselves using their operational engineering IT data. And is it a particular industry within the manufacturing? It's a great question. So we, the, the biggest challenge comes when the more complex and heavy the industry is. So we're looking at manufacturing, anything from process to discrete, but also energy, oil and gas, the whole oil and gas chain, power and utility, renewables, in places where there are very large capital investments, where the projects are amortized over very long periods, there's a lot of merger and acquisitions. And typically, it's a lot of complex data. And that's what the challenge is, that, that all of understanding what's going on is very difficult. And trying to use the data to not only understand, but also optimize is even more challenging. So that, that we like. That's what we've the software. Yeah, let's try to double click on this. And if you could provide maybe a case study, what's particular use case for this data and how it can be Cognite utilized so our listeners truly understand? Sure. If you take the example of a chemical manufacturing plants, you will have some of the large players are very often operating multiple plants. When you whoever buys the, the, the outcome of these chemical plants wants to make sure that they get the same output and they get the right quality of whatever product is, is being produced. But the plant itself is dealing with raw materials or whatever material they're receiving, which may vary from batch to batch or from time to time. They're also dealing with equipment that will be maybe from different providers, very complex equipment. They will be dealing with processes that may or may not always be the same. And they're dealing with people who are operating these machines. And they need to make sure that despite all of this, despite potential failures or, or challenges on the operational side, they still operate as safely as possible, as consistently as possible, and as efficiently as possible. And for that, it means that they're getting tens, if not hundreds of thousands of sensors, feeding them time series. They're getting images from robots, from cameras, from people on the ground. They're getting ERP data. They're getting lab samples. And all of these 
is telling them what's really going on. But in order to tease this out and understand what they should be really focusing on, what they should really be optimizing, they need to build a higher level of understanding. And what they do when, whenever they collect all of this data and they're building that higher level of understanding, which is where the intelligence comes in, right? So that I understand what really is happening. Then they can start optimizing and they can start predicting failures. They can start telling you actually that process on that specific assembly line, this is where you should tweak it in order to obtain the result you're seeking or avoid having to throw away that batch. They also can say, well, actually you have a maintenance coming in a month's time as you're planning that maintenance, these are all the other things you should plan to do. Because what we can see is that this is currently happening with your equipment. And it's better as you're going to take it down, you should plan to also maybe refurbish some of that asset, or maybe that's the time when you want to do this inspection at the same time. So all of these little optimization come from a very deep understanding and a very granular understanding of what's happening on the assets. And we are talking about millions of data points per second. We're talking about very, very varied data types, anything from images to LiDAR to sound, but also traditional IT data. And you want to merge all of that together in order to feed all of these smart algorithms. And that's the algorithms are a business on its own. You will see a lot of companies focusing on machine learning driven optimization process or predictive processes. But before you can do that, you need to make sense of all of that data. And again, we're talking big volumes and we're talking pretty complex data types. So the traditional data warehousing systems are not really what you can use. And that's where Cognite comes in. That's where it's an orchestration of all of these data. People talk about data ops. That's what we do. We look at the data. We can make sense of it. We can build a graph if you want to go technically. We can build a graph of that data in, in a way that a human or a machine can ask smart questions to the data. So that it's, it's not just silos of data stored, it becomes something that is meaningful. Is that making, making sense, Lesnar? It makes quite a bit of sense, yeah, certainly understand. And uh, from a perspective of uh, who do you typically replace, is it something that historically been done on Excel and then uh, you guys come in and tell people that, hey, actually there is a better way or there are some sort of internally created pro uh, software that companies use it's a great question. So, so the business outcomes are quite clear. And today, some systems are doing part of it. So you, you will have scatter systems. You will have historians who store some specific type of data. You will have, whenever there's video inspection done, they will be stored on a hard drive somewhere. You may have uh, an ERP system somewhere that has some of the data or, or production management system. The challenge is that each of them are their own little silos. Yeah. Not all of them are usable, by the way. Some of them are so old that nobody can really find the data once it's in there. And the mm -hmm. point clouds or 3D are typic very typically uh, in that category or big time series of vibration data. So we are sometimes replacing some of these data re repositories, but most of the time we're making the data accessible, right? We're actually liberating that data and make sure that somebody can actually use it and see it. And that's a, that's a pretty big win. So it's it's very nice to have my, my sensor data in one place. That's great. Maybe if I know what sensor is about, I can start doing some things with it. But if I can combine that sensor data with my maintenance planning data, with my staff availability data, with a few pictures that tell me actually that there's maybe rust being developed on one of the assets, then all of a sudden I can start making decisions a lot more intelligently than just looking at a single data point, right? So we are replacing some of these systems. We are moving to cloud and better performances. But the biggest news is that actually... We're making data that used to be siloed, finally available. Gotcha. Obviously, from description, you mentioned it's primarily for a complex organization. So I'm assuming the clients are enterprise clients, not the small manufacturers. They're mostly enterprise clients. We do have 
for complex processes, uh, Cognite has been working with some smaller single asset clients as well. So it's relevant. But typically, the bigger the organization, the more complex the data. So the more fun the problem to solve, basically. And by single asset, you mean? Uh, one, one manufacturing plant. Gotcha. So one, one manufacturing plant, yeah. Mm. Got it, got it. That's helpful. Like if, so what I'm trying to establish now is trying to understand your go-to-market strategy. And for that, I'm trying to guess what's the typical pricing for this type of solution. Can you give like a ballpark so we can go from there? Yeah. So the ballpark will range anywhere from uh, four figures a month to six figures a month on the, on, as, as, as a SaaS. Got it. And now go to go-to-market strategy. How do you guys approach it? It's a great question because it's, it's about where the market is in its maturity. And, and, and as we discussed, right, we're talking very established companies that are not necessarily used to buy SaaS. Let's start with that. Mm-hmm. These data have been in silos with very respectable companies occupying that space, but not necessarily SaaS or software, primarily software companies, with a mix of hardware and software very often. So the go-to market, when you establish the company and you tell them, we're going we're gonna to allow you to make sense of your data, and the customer knows how complex that is, right? Initially, they say, okay, I see that, but why, I mean, why will I gain from that, right? What's going to be my ROI? So even though you, you come from a software background with a very clear product that solves contextualization in a graph and data lineage, you cannot talk like that. Initially, you have to be able to articulate what is the business outcome, right? So you need to be able to address business outcome and value from a client in a language that will allow them to understand the position you have in the market because there's nothing like that, like us, like a Cognite when you first establish the market. So since we are a first mover and we are establishing a new market, initially you need to talk about business outcome because they don't have a referential in the IT organization or in the software purchasing that will correspond to what you're offering. That's the, the path we've taken initially. So looking at business outcome and then walking back from there as to what it takes to get there and why, what are the various software components or does it fit into an enterprise architecture? Who's decision maker on, on these companies? So, and again, it's a maturity cross curve. So, so it's, what's interesting is to see where we started, which was very much business outcome. And now where we have several customers, right? we have over 70 customers, we, we start to have a recognition. The field is getting noticed by the gardeners and the foresters since a little while. And so it's a very different, there's a transition happening in the market we're in. But initially, your buyer is going to be the business. Because they are the ones who understand, actually, who live with the pain of poor data and not inability to make decisions the way they would like to. Mm-hmm. So see, if you help them saying, this is the business problem we're going to help you solve, they're going to actually be able to say, okay, now I understand and I'm going to talk in my internal organization to my innovation department. Maybe the digital team is in the mix because they understand both the business and the IT and they're going to help you getting there initially. So, and and the, the business is critical there because they're the ones that build the ROI. As the domain matures and you have more people understanding, oh, by the way, if we have that, we have that solution here that runs, that can optimize my part of the asset, my pain, or that can do my carbon reporting. My pain is that in order to deploy it, I need all this data and and it takes me too much time to get all that data. Then the proposition becomes different because you can come with a proposition just as purely this enablement layer. And there your buyer becomes a lot more the IT part of the organization. So the company started in Norway and it is now in uh, quite a few countries, right? Can you walk me through, or maybe just share your take, like which companies are more receptive to this type of solution? Are European companies or in companies in North America? Initially, I mean, we started in Europe and there was a very strong understanding of what we were doing. 
where we started in Norway, which is quite digitally mature. And we also started with the first operators and, and industrials we work with. We're very much ahead of the curve in realizing that in order for them to perform better, it was not just about pretty algorithm. It was really a data issue. So they understood that it was not necessarily, it was not just the machine learning optimization piece. It was also a massive data piece, which took the industry a little while to realize. Uh, so these needed to be productized and scalable. It's not something that you do as a one-off or as an integration piece. And the Americas came to that, but a little bit later. So we were lucky there to start in Norway where there was this realization ahead of America. But right now, I would say there's no major differences between the, the European market and the American market that I can see. That I can see. A long time ago, I read the post that when European companies, particularly software companies, when they expand to the United States, they uh, try to hire somebody locally because the person has connections here, the person knows the culture, and here you are, a French person in Austin, Texas, trying to uh, expand to, to America, it's not, just North, not just United States. How was it for you? Can you take me back to the assignment? What was the first thing you did? That's a great question. I had the privilege of working with very, very, very good American operations in my previous life and with, with other companies. And I have a lot of respect as well for the fact that it's important to understand the culture and the territory you, you, you work in and you operate in. But indeed, I am French in Texas. But uh, <laughs> what, what, you have, what, what I have acknowledged very early on was precisely what, as you said, right? My strength will be that I understand where we come from. I understand the company intimately. I understand what has been making us successful in Europe. And I, I have a, a level of empathy and, and understanding of what we are trying to achieve. But I, I have, even though I, I had the privilege of working in the US with very good American teams and Latin American teams, I'm clearly not American and I, I cannot claim an intimate knowledge of the American market. So like everything, when you're building a team, everybody will have strengths and weaknesses. So if I come with my set of strengths, but clear weaknesses as well, you have to establish that, okay, that means that I need to bring this strength in the team as early as possible. And that's what I set up to do. I, I was fortunate to also move with another colleague that was also, actually, he was Norwegian, but he has a very strong experience also working in the American market firsthand. But we very quickly brought in competences and skill and people with skills and an understanding of the American market to complement the team. And by the way, also not just regarding nationality, but also the type of skills and competences that it takes to work with manufacturing or oil and gas or utility, that was also very important for us to, even though we are software people, to bring also to the team as quickly as possible, very strong domain experts. So that because you have to explain, again, talking to the business and explaining what is the value, not just from a software perspective, but also from a business perspective. So who's the first person you guys hired? We hired first a very good colleague who's not very far from you in the Bay Area, leading the commercial arm of the organization to lead sales. So uh, an American gentleman who's been leading commercial organizations and know very well the American market, the enterprise American market, so software enterprise. And we brought in as well, we, we were fortunate to find uh, a good colleague who's leading architecture who comes from the uh, oil and gas part, uh, part of the industry. So he knows very well not the, the enterprise architecture part of, of, of the organization. And then we quickly built, uh, built a team around uh, a nucleus of leadership team. When it comes to salespeople, hiring salespeople, you have somewhat a unique offering or newish offering to the market. How do you select right salespeople? Do you look for somebody who used to sell the software of this size or do you look at somebody from the industries you guys are servicing? It's a great question. It's also a dilemma because obviously you need both at some point in the sales cycle. So back to the 
the original question, is it an advantage or a disadvantage to be a Frenchman in the US? Well, you have to look at it as both a strength and weaknesses, and it's about who you bring build around as a team. So, and it's the same thing when it comes to the sales. The, the, clearly, you will need more competences than just being a very strong enterprise, enterprise software sales or a very strong domain or uh, industry sales. And our bias early on was to say it's very important that we have sales that are very empathetic to the client's pain point from a business perspective, because these are going to be the main drivers. So for us to have credibility in understanding the pain, the business pain points, and translating that to hold that we could improve them, and then we will complement that with very strong software skills as, as a technical pre-sales and supporting organization behind, behind them. And so, so that's the direction we took. And again, it's, it's, I believe it's a maturity, it's a maturity curve because I see some of our newer colleagues coming more for enterprise sales, uh, so software sales that are actually becoming more and more relevant for, for the sales cycles we're having now. Got it. What would you say were the biggest challenge you face to date? I mean, establishing a new vertical and a new market is always a challenge, right? Because it's you have to not only make sure that your product is competitive, but you have to explain to people something they had never considered before. So you need to find ways for your clients to not only convince them that you are somebody they may want to do business with, but also that there is actually a pain point and, and an opening in, in their current architecture that we, you can help solve, even though they've operated that way for hundreds of years, maybe before, and certainly on the architecture side. For, for dozens of years. So, and that's a challenge that is quite universal, nothing to do with us or the market we're in. If you're opening a new market, you're going to have to explain very clearly the need and the why and the why now. Another challenge we faced, and that's an interesting one, being back to your questions on being an operation with an international part of, of, uh, of an organization, is always that the references that the organization are, are very much around Northern Europe and the success that Cognite has been experiencing there. And I've seen the other way around, right, with very successful American companies coming to Europe, where you have to help the organization realize the specificity of the new market and that maybe the references and the logos and what made success, what was considered success in Europe may not be relevant in the US. Let me, let me give you an example. It's hard to remember, but three years ago, when you looked at the, uh, the American oil and gas companies talking about carbon efficiency and sustainability pledges was actually not something that was very relevant. And very few of the companies were talking about that. Well, in Europe, that was a big part of what we were enabling, right? And transparency on operations, carbon efficiency, sustainability were a very strong message in Europe. And Cognite was very proud of that. And that was a very strong marketing message. In the US, not so much. The market was not really receptive to these things. So it's very interesting to see this type of dynamics where that story is clearly a valuable story, but it's not yet, the market is not yet ready here in the US for it, or was not here ready yet in the US for it. So that's been part of the challenges of establishing an operation here. So when do you think it became more relevant if it has? I think the, the timing was about a year off, a year and a half off, because you had the big pledge era where all the CEOs came out and the rest of the organization say, what? What, <laughs> what did you just say there? <laughs> and, uh, and then scrambled to actually say, well, we all thought about it and nobody dared to say it. That's a great idea. But what does it concretely mean? And now starting to organize as to, okay, this is aligning. So, so I would say the last six months to a year have been dramatically different for this very topic of sustainability, greenhouse gas, and, and carbon reporting in the U.S. compared to what it was three years ago. Got it. When you look at the corporate cultures inside of organization and outside of organization of United States and Europe, what are the differences, in your opinion? No, oh, it's 
It's a very broad question, and and, and I would be very careful uh, to generalize. To be honest, I, I <laughs> it's it's a little bit it's too stereotypical because I've seen. Let's say something offensive, so and clickbait people into this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> no, 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 no. On the high road, I'm just curious. Like, what's what? What did you notice that you think maybe United States would benefit from taking it from from Europe and vice versa? So, and again, being stereotypical is very easy. What I have seen in in Northern Europe, in Scandinavia, where I lived 13 years before before moving here, has been a, a high degree of trust and empowerment. And I'm not just talking software here, I'm in generally across all companies. And it turns out that it does pay off to trust people and give them an opportunity to make decisions and actually have a say on topics that would could, in a lot of organizations, be top-down uh, or very hierarchically uh, driven. An example that I see in the um, maintenance and operating world is back to the topic we just mentioned. If you want to optimize a process, you can decide that it will be a very smart algorithms or a very smart scheduling system that will tell everybody what to do at any given time. Another approach that I've seen taken in, in Scandinavia is to say, well, actually, I trust the people. If I give them the right information, they're actually capable of making the right decisions as well. I don't need to give them everything because... I don't always know everything, right? So, so when it comes to optimization algorithms, for example, I've seen some of the, um, the Northern European clients giving the operators not just the data about what's happening right now on their machine, but also the current energy and carbon intensity of what they're doing. That's it, right? Giving them visibility on what was happening. And they know it's a dramatic cut in energy and carbon in operation just by giving them the visibility, saying, I'll trust you to actually do the right thing if I give you the right information. Very simple things, right? So, and this I mean, this was a small example, but I've seen this type of example across the organizations. And I think there's a, this type of empowerment and trust is very powerful if you accept it. What I've seen here in, in America that Europe could learn from is this thinking of scale very early on. The, the, there's a saying that when Americans move, they move big, right? That ability to think big and execute big. It's pretty singular. And then again, not just on the tech industry. I'm thinking also what I'm seeing in my current and past uh, clients and, and partners. So this ability to think big, but also organize a structure to execute big is, is very impressive. Got it. You have some very impressive investors at Cognite. You have Axel, you have TCV and some others. How involved are they in the day-to-day -day operation, if at all? In the day-to-day -day operation, they're not actively involved. However, they do; they are very involved from an advisory and board perspective. And they've been very clear. They've been, first of all, very helpful when they came on board and they didn't just invest and get a seat on the board. They also talked quite a bit to the organization about their rationale for investing, which was very interesting from an outside-in perspective, right? They see... They see a lot of software companies, a lot of promising software companies. So why they chose Cognite and what they saw as attractive, but also being quite candid about what we need to do in order to be successful and, and, and prove them right, right? That was very helpful. And they came, yeah, I really appreciate the candor and the fact that they took the time to speak to the overall organization about, about these, uh, these things. And as of today, again, the, the, I think the main benefit of having them as part of our owners and, and the board is the perspective they can give us. As we are growing, as we're going through the pains of growth, but also where we see the opportunities of growth, it's great to have people who can help be proper thought leaders and, and also good coaches in that process. So what's your long-term vision for Cognite? That's a great question. The company was, was founded with a, with a pretty clear vision that we can help transform the industry. There's a vision that ultimately industry will be autonomous. 
And this autonomy will drive more efficiency, will drive more safety and more sustainability. And if you want to get there, it's a data problem or a foundational piece is a data problem. So if you look at the vision for Cognite is to be able to help power that. It's not about being all of it, but really being able to enable that is where we want to go. And, and as you can imagine, the potential is quite massive for, for Cognite to be that and to be very, very focused on making sure you can, you can trust all of these decisions that are being made and you can, you can learn from them and you can work as a full industry, integrated supply chain, knowing that all the components of that supply chain will be optimized. So, so that's where we are going and that's what we want to enable in the long run. And does this enable mean, mean you need to enter every single country or you're going to be selective of what countries you enter? As a, so from a business decision perspective, we cannot be any, everywhere all at once. So there has to be a sequencing. And we have been quite selective about where we think the highest potential for us to make an impact and prove what the technology can do. And that's where we're in the US. That's where we are in Middle East. That's where we're in Japan. In the longer run, we have a very clear partner-driven strategy. And the partner-driven strategy is that we will enable the industry. And that means that we will work on not only the hyperscalers, but also integrators, but also other startups. And we already started doing that. And the only way to make sure that there is a healthy ecosystem, that there is a value being driven and that helps you as a technology vendor, that helps you basically growing outside of where you have a physical presence, uh, will be to have a successful network of partners. And we, are, we have been fortunate with the first few success to start building that ecosystem very consciously. And I mentioned from the hyperscalers, we've been recognized manufacturer of the year by Google, ISV200 by Microsoft, which are great recognition. But for us, it's almost as important to work with some of the local partners who are building solutions, who are de de delivering the last mile. This is where we believe we will have the, the highest impact in the long run. Got it. Thank you, Francois. Thanks for being on the podcast. It was great being there today. Thank us now.